MailChimp presents. Clusters aren't always a bad thing. Like a cluster of stars in the night sky, or those crunchy little clusters in your cereal. But you know what's never good? A clustomer. A clustomer is what happens when marketers group customers with very different behaviors into one big messy audience. Like when someone receives a new customer coupon code, but they're already an existing customer. Intuit MailChimp can help. They offer email marketing personalization tools that help marketers send product recommendations and discounts based on behavior data, turning your customers back into the unique customers that they are. Intuit MailChimp, the number one email marketing and automations brand. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide number of customers in 2021 and 2022. We all have that elder, you know, like an auntie, a friend, a parent, who drops wisdom on us and changes the course of our lives. This season, I'm talking to 15 incredible people about important moments they went through and how the elders in their lives got them through it. I'm your host, Jenny Yang, and this is Going Through It. This week, Alexander Chi. I did not know her name until she died. I was with one of my relatives and I was like, what was her name? And they had this kind of conversation before they told me. I was like, is this a secret? <laughs> what did you call her usually? I just always called her Halmony, which is grandmother. Alexander Chi is one of my favorite writers. In the year before the pandemic, Alex's book of essays, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, was actually a part of my self-care ritual. I loved sipping on a lager and reading his book at my favorite Taiwanese restaurant. His stories were so moving. Okay, one moment I'd be chilling, and the next I'm out here with a full-on ugly cry. I love that his writing is rooted in memory and family, the same areas of inspiration in my work. And when he's not writing, he's teaching his students at Dartmouth College how to become better storytellers. Alex grew up mostly in Maine, but often traveled to Korea to visit his father's side of the family. Like so many Koreans of their generation, Alex's grandparents survived the brutal Japanese occupation during World War II. Alex's grandmother wasn't allowed a formal education as a young girl in the 1930s, and as a consolation, her father taught her how to mix inks for Chinese classical calligraphy. The lesson stayed with her, and after her children had all grown up, she continued her study of the art and went on to win national prizes. Now, decades after her passing, Alex's grandmother is still teaching him important lessons about discovering beauty and meaning. My grandmother was a beauty. She had a beautiful classical Korean oval face. She wore her hair parted down the middle and with a slight wave to it that she would usually keep up in a bun. And she wore her hair more or less in that style for for her entire life. One of the things that she was known for is that she could just see through people in about 30 seconds. So there was always a 
a kind of terror if you were approaching her and not entirely honest or if you were introducing someone to her for the first time and her decisions about people made on those more or less immediate impressions more or less stuck but she was not often wrong my oldest uncle would often say that she was the real aristocrat uh, and she came from Gohyang uh, along the coast and my grandfather was what they call an island boy he was from Naruto, which is off the coast of Goyang. And he was a fisherman from a family of fishermen. And she developed a crush on him at school and asked her father if she could be set up with him. He did allow her to effectively choose her husband. What do you remember about your grandmother? I remember specifically visiting as an older person. And... We had not been in a very long time, and so she had arranged for an astonishing amount of food. Not just to welcome us, though, but like every day. But that's the thing that's so appalling is that, so she'd lay out these tables of food and we would eat and she would eat in the kitchen. And I, I was like, where's my grandmother going? So old school. Had you ever confronted her about that? Like, come join us? No, no. The thing is that no one was acting like anything was wrong, you know. So instead, I would just go into the kitchen. She would ask if I liked the food. I would nod and sort of like rub my stomach. Did you speak Korean? Well, my father hadn't wanted us to learn Korean. He would joke that like, if you can understand your grandfather, you'll obey him. So his idea behind like keeping us as English-only kids was that he was keeping us from being controlled by our grandfather. Even though it's a joke, it's very serious. And she didn't really know any English. So it was a lot of like eye conversations and facial expressions where you and the other person are looking at each other and you, you know what the other person means. And there's something very intimate about communicating with somebody that way, even as it's also very frustrating given the limits of it. Oh, I can deeply relate to eye conversations with grandma. So I know that your grandmother was skilled in Chinese calligraphy. Like, how did she get to do that? Her schooling had to stop at a certain point in Korea. Women were not educated past a certain age, typically. And so she missed her access to an education. To console her for her lack of an education, her father taught her how to mix his inks for classical Chinese calligraphy which is a very intense skill set. It's considered the kind of foyer to the mastery of the art, where you learn how to create the exact consistencies for different ways of creating the brushstroke on the page. Because it's where the texture of the ink is created and the mixing of the ink. And that, of course, affects how the ink moves across the page. And that longing to not just mix the inks, but to but to put the ink on the page, is what she then, some 30 years later, came to my grandfather with and said, I've wanted to do this my whole life. Will you let me do this? Will you help me to do this? My grandfather, he hired two tutors instead of just one to begin her more formal education as a Chinese classical calligraphy artist. So she was in the 1930s not getting further schooling 
getting introduced to calligraphy, which is very highly valued, considered gentlemanly skill. And she she was soon winning prizes, and uh, her pieces were getting acquired in museums. And by the time she died, one of China's leading classical calligraphy artists said of her, if she had been a man, she would have been my equal. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little bit of a backhanded compliment, let's be honest. It's a very patriarchal compliment. It also does speak to how, you know, she didn't start till she was 40. And many of the other practitioners who were men began much earlier. I've never forgotten that. It's like an unforgettable commentary on her existence and her art. I think of her as someone who understood the constraints on her, but was not content to simply accept them. And so was always looking for, like, how can I, how can I make the thing I need to happen, happen? So for people who don't know much about the about the art of Chinese classical calligraphy, typically you you use a line from classical Chinese poetry and you you render that much in the way that say an artist would treat a landscape, a famous landscape, uh, the Chinese calligraphy artist engages with a line of poetry. And some of them engage with the same line uh, for a very long time. And it becomes part of what people know about their work. When people think of calligraphy, they don't maybe think of the artistic value of it, but the idea is that the character of the artist is visible in the character that they create on the page. And I think the one that that she did most, I don't know the poem, but the line is, I followed the red leaves further into the mountains. It's another expression of longing, you know, and I think of whatever that must have meant to her. I think it's important for us to understand that, like, Chinese calligraphy is literally the, like, nerdiest, most elite kind of act that was only practiced by men, very rarely by women, you know? And if it was by women, it was by very, like, you know, highly educated or higher class women. And so I was just like contemplating, like trying to put myself in your grandmother's shoes um, and how significant it was for her to be so accomplished as a woman in classical Chinese calligraphy. Her story, I think, resonates with me in all these different ways. So for example, something that I teach my students quite regularly is I ask them to think about how the laws that we live under have shaped them in ways that they don't often like to think about. Like, how did your existence get shaped by immigration laws, by laws around marriage, by laws around uh, who could own a home, uh, who could apply for credit? So her story, in a sense, became like something that illuminated for me how something like that can shape you. And a lot of my work in writing is also about providing those kinds of contexts for readers. That's so beautiful. Despite the social limits placed on her, your grandmother accomplished so much. So here's an interesting detail that may interest you. The house in Korea that we visited her at in the 80s uh, and also that we lived in in the 1960s is a house that she bought. 
Because my grandfather was traveling a lot and she just wanted it done. So she's the one who bought it. It was something that came out recently as we're, we were dealing with estate stuff. And I was really impressed. You know, the stories that I had heard of her were like her burying her sewing machine and all of her silverware so that the soldiers wouldn't come and melt them down for bullets. Um, you know, sending her sons out to take rice bags from overturned supply trucks. I think there was some rice smuggling at a certain point during the Japanese occupation. My my grandfather just didn't have enough rice for his kids, and so he didn't want them to starve, so he became a rice smuggler. I had a memory of her. It wasn't really a memory of her, I guess. It was this kind of imagined... Basically, it was the beginning of COVID quarantine, where we're all like being told to stay at home. And, you know, the best thing we can do is just not end up in the hospital. So I'm looking at my pantry and speculating as to whether I have enough food. And somehow I just felt her like over my shoulder, kind of like looking at my pantry and just laughing at the idea that I would be worried with that much food. (laughs) And I was like, okay, I'll be fine. I'm pretty sure she visited me before she died. Like I had a vision of her that turned out to be the night that she died. I was just like in graduate school at Iowa, awake, in bed, trying to fall asleep. I was looking at the ceiling um, and suddenly like I, I basically felt like I saw her face. And then my grandfather called me to tell me that she had died. I was far away from my family, far away from Korea. I knew that her health had not been good. Even though it was startling and it was strange, it was not scary. I wasn't like, (gasps) you know, I didn't have this feeling of dread or horror. And so it was this really like intense moment in my life where I was in Iowa City. It was like my second year of graduate school. It was so unexpected and I didn't really know I didn't have any context for it until I think I was talking to uh, another Korean American writer. She said, oh, Korean grandmothers do that all the time. And I was like, they do? What? What are you talking about? (laughs) I was like a little skeptical, if not a lot. But also somehow it reassured me, just felt like some way of telling me that I mattered. At that time in Iowa, I felt like Maybe I had done the best thing I had ever done for my life, but maybe I had also just really screwed my life up, which is pretty much how you feel during your MFA. But it felt like a way of anchoring me in some ways to like the family and and to her. Oh, one last eye communication. Oh, that's so beautiful. Oh my goodness. And... And you mattered. You mattered to her that she came to you. So now, how do you carry on her legacy? Hmm. You know, something that I do regret is that, uh, you know, she had wanted that home in Seoul to be a place where the family would continue to gather for many years. And that's just not real. But I created a fellowship named for her for women of color and open especially to 
uh, Asian and Asian American women writers and and femmes, especially those who might have been older and were returning to the art after, say, taking time off to raise a family. And what was your grandmother's name? I did not know her name until she died. I was with one of my relatives and I was like, what was her name? And they had this kind of conversation before they told me. I was like, is this a secret? (laughs) What did you call her usually? I just always called her Halmony, which is grandmother. And then later I learned that her name was Yideop. The name of the fellowship. Which is the name of the fellowship now, yes. You know, I think, you know, the writers who I've helped support through the fellowship in her name, like Kat Chow, whose book just came out, Seeing Ghosts, that but she was a one of the first Yideab fellows. Um, and uh, Larissa Pham, pop song, she's another Yideab fellow. Yeah, I think she would love their books. I think she would love like what they're doing in the world. And so I, that's why I want to keep doing more with it is it's a way of like thanking her I don't know if this is an Asian thing or immigrant thing but whenever I hear about older Asian people and the whole ass lives they've lived immediate tears to this day I still don't know my grandparents names there will always be my akong, ama, ye ye, nai nai. I was always told that calling them by their place in the family was an act of respect. But like Alex's grandmother, there's always more to a person than the titles we give them. I'm really touched by the way that Alex makes sure his grandmother's legacy lives on. And I think there's a lesson in there for all of us. There are so many stories like Yideops. Stories that could get lost to history if they aren't enshrined and retold. Whether it's as small as sharing a story with a friend about an elder who means a lot to you, or as big as starting a fellowship. Those exchanges help them live on, even after they're gone. Like Chinese calligraphy, telling someone's story is a delicate art. But the best way to begin is by watching and listening. Going Through It is an original podcast created in partnership with MailChimp and Pineapple Street Studios. Executive producers for Going Through It are Jayanne Berry, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. Our managing producer is Agarenish Ashagre. This season is produced by the all-star team of Sophia Steinert-Evoy, Emerald O'Brien, and Yinka Rickford-Anguin. And we're edited by the irreplaceable Aaron Edwards. We're engineered to perfection or very close to it by Davey Sumner. Our theme music was produced by Raj Makija. Dawood Anthony also produced original music for this season with additional tunes from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. Extra special thanks to Himia Freeman for his support on this production. And of course, the biggest thanks to my own elders for everything and for being the inspiration behind the show. Mom, Dad, Margaret Cho, Tracy Kato Kiriyama, Keiko Agena, Tim Sams, Gina Lugong, Kwan Fung, Michelle Ko, and so many more. 
And thanks in general to my loud-ass partner, Corey Higgs, for staying quiet in the house for me. And thank you for listening.